All right, let's open up our Bibles and make our way to Matthew 8. Matthew 8, and we are in verses 14 through 17 this morning. A short passage, uh, sort of falling along in the theme of what we've been seeing in, in chapter 8 since Jesus came off the mount from uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And as he's come off the mountain, he comes teaching with authority, but then not just teaching and, and speaking with authority, but also uh, performing miracles, uh, healing lepers, uh, dying servants by His Word through His touch. And we continue the theme in verses 14 through 17 in another episode of Jesus healing someone. Um, again, as we go through Matthew and we see, we feel things are repetitious and repeating Typically, when we see things repeating, we have to understand that there is a grave importance to the repetition. Uh, to be one who repeats themselves without meaning is um, hard to hear. But when there's repetition for the sake of proclaiming the powerful truth, then we must pay attention. And so the third episode of healing, and we're going to have more and more healing as we go through 9, 10, and into 11. Uh, but let me read verses 14 through 17, also reminding us that as we see, it's not just we're understanding that Jesus heals, but we're wanting to understand more about Jesus. And we're also understanding more about His kingdom as we see these miracles and, and these healings. Because every time, perhaps a little bit more of a piece is revealed to us about who He is and about His kingdom. So verses 14 through 17. Let me read them and then ask the Lord to help us. Verse 14, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and her fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Pray with me one more time. Lord, help us to see and understand what we did not know as we came in this morning whether it be of Christ, your kingdom, or of ourselves, in the need of growth and repentance. Teach us truth. Show us your Son. Be glorified in our transformation for his sake. Amen. So we're still in Capernaum. Uh, we spoke a little bit about Capernaum last week. Uh, and, and as we saw in the text, Jesus and his followers make their way to Peter's house. And, uh, you know, we, we 
We spoke about uh, some of the apostles, some of the first disciples that were living in Capernaum. Jesus had made his second home in Capernaum after he'd fled from Nazareth. So they make their way to Peter's house, and we're assuming that the great crowds that followed him off the mount probably followed him to Capernaum. And uh, Lord willing, next week we're going to see him try to escape the great crowds. But until now, uh, they're making their way to Peter's house. Um, And they get to Peter's house. They find Peter's mother-in-law bedridden. And she's bedridden due to fever. Uh, I think we could probably all relate to what it feels like to be so feverish that you don't want to move. Um, A couple of years ago, I caught a bug and had a fever for the first time in uh, probably 20 years. And I didn't want to move. I I literally just want to lay in bed. And that that shows you... um, That shows you the uncomfortableness. That shows you what the body can do when it finds itself in such a state. Uh, But I would even presume that Peter's mother-in-law is fighting something a lot more than what I did when I had a bug. And maybe some of you have fought those types of fevers that just basically almost put you in the hospital, if not did that very thing. Um, She's there. She's lying sick with a fever. Now, verse verse 14 sort of just lays that out for us. But then verse 15, we see Jesus intervene. And we're just going to kind of walk through quickly these first few verses, a couple of verses, just to understand what's going on. So verse 15, we see no dialogue, no, hey, Jesus, come help us out. Uh, come check out my mother-in-law, see what's going on. No request. Now in Mark, we are told that the disciples did make Uh, the sickness and the fever of Peter's mother-in-law known to Jesus, that all we see in 14 and 15 of Matthew is an acknowledgement, a touch, and the fever's gone. That's it. He saw, he touched, and the fever left. Now, as New Testament Christians, uh, we have, not, not just New Testament Christians, but we've always had access to the Gospels, whether we actually did, they were in our house, or people told them. But we live in a time frame where we hear much about the miracles of Jesus, and it becomes to where it's just like riding a bike. Oh, Jesus healed someone. Yeah, of course, it's Jesus. That's what he does. He heals people. But what we've got the potential of doing, and the danger, is when hearing about the miracles, the healings of Jesus, walking on water, things of this nature. Uh, we're just like, well, that's that's what he's supposed to do, right? But what do we miss? Well, in this story, we miss something great. Something will actually be made known of later, I think, in verse in chapter ten or eleven, is when we when we don't consider deeply these what seem like obvious tasks of Jesus, is we miss the compassion of Jesus, right? Compassion. Um, if you're like me, you probably miss it on a lot of places. Um, but we must not forget the compassion, the heart of Jesus. Ultimately, who is he having compassion on? Well, if, when we'll get to it, I think it's in 11. Uh, Jesus finds compassion typically 
for those who seem to be in a helpless state. He uses the example that he had compassion on the crowds in Matthew 11 because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's a helpless state, right? Peter's mom, mother-in-law, finds herself in a helpless state. You and I and every sinner everywhere who find ourselves in helpless states. Why is that? Why does mankind find themselves in a helpless state? It's because they have no way to heal themselves. And ultimately, what do we mean? Not of disease, not of a fever, but ultimately of a sick, sick heart, right? That's the helplessness. That's the compassion of Christ that comes, that pushes the gospel to us as sinners. The compassion of Christ. And this is the compassion that draws him to lay his hand upon Peter's mother-in-law and to cause the fever to go away. He sees this dear lady in great discomfort and is moved by distress knowing of the situation that they're in. Now, uh, now we, we, we talked about the helpless state. But one thing we want to see as we consider um, Jesus' compassion and his work towards people in his compassion is what it should stir up. And that's what we see in uh, the end of verse 15. So we see his compassion. He He acknowledges, he touches, and he heals her. And then we see her response. She serves him. She rises and, and begins to serve him. Um, here's the irony of this. This woman serves him, the one who came not to be served. Now, that's a lot of serves there, so let me say it again. She serves, she is healed and stands up to serve the one who came not to be served. Now, I want you to think with a couple things that have to come out of this. And I hope all these words aren't, aren't getting us confused. But here, here's, the, here's the thing. What happens to this woman is the pattern of biblical redemption. Okay? Where does she begin? We've already said, in a helpless state. Right? The state of all people, helpless. What, what follows the mercy and compassion of God? What happens then later after the mercy and compassion of God, but the uplifting of a man or a woman by God? She's down in the bed. The compassion comes upon her. And what happens to her? She rises up. Right? That is the work of God through Jesus Christ and the gospel of mercy and compassion coming to a helpless, ultimately, Ephesians 2 would say, a dead man or a woman. The love of God through Jesus Christ, the compassion of the gospel, then raising them not just from a sick bed, but out of the grave. Right? Is that it? No. The pattern continues. They ri- they're, they're, they're raised up by God in His compassion And then what do they do? They're devoted to and their worship of God because of the work and compassion of God. That's 
the biblical pattern of restoration from helpless to raised up and devoted and worshiping God through the mercy and compassion of God. Now the other thing, kind of going back to what we saw, what I said just a second ago, is that she's serving the one who came not to be served. It is a bit of irony. Um, Mark 10.45, Jesus' words says, I came to serve and not be served, right? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus' ministry, from healing to preaching, is one of humility and compassion. How? In lowering himself, humbling himself, taking the form of the servant, one who serves. And here's the beauty of the glory of Jesus Christ. His service to others is so remarkable. His humility to others is so remarkable that the only way to respond to his humility and service is in humility and service. To who? To him. And when we think about service and we think about serving Jesus, you can insert worship Jesus. See, that's why we cannot have this idea that worship is singing. It is not. It is service unto the Lord. Right? It is a, it's a humbling, lowering, and, and giving ourselves over to Him who was the most humble and serving. Here He is, the Son of Man, the Son of God, and what does He do? What does he, do? he touches a sick woman. What do you do when you see a sick person? You escape. You run away. You mark and avoid because you do not want the fever. You do not want the sickness. He did the same thing to a leper at the beginning of this chapter. How humble does one have to be to touch a leper in order to serve and heal him? This is the ministry of Jesus. It's called condescension. Not condescension. That's what happens outside on your windshield. Condescension. Right? How high was the Son of Man? In eternity past. He counted. He could he he was counted. Uh, I don't want to botch this. Um, let's just look at it. Philippians two. You try to quote it and then you just miss 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 say it. Jesus was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be held onto. The Son of God, the for, in the form of God, equal to the Father, and did not hold on to it, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. So as long as we're in this world, as long as we have breath in our lungs... We must follow this pattern of Jesus. Of not counting ourselves of something of greatness or quality. But understanding that we follow the steps of Christ in humility and taking on the form of a servant. We, if you weren't here for Sunday school class, we, we were talking about the way a Christian ought to respond to Pride Month. This is a good pattern to start, right? 
it's a good a good pattern to start. If um, we'll post that on the website if you want to listen to that. Um, so as long as we have breath in our lungs, whether we it's feverish breath or healthy breath, we follow the pattern of humility, of humbling ourselves, as Peter said, under the mighty hand of God. And guess what? At the proper time, He will exalt you. At His time, just as Christ was exalted as He humbled Himself to the point of death, He humbled Himself in resurrection and being granted all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, back to Matthew 8, verse 16. So, the situation in the mother with the mother-in-law in Peter's house has ended and we see that that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. The miraculous power of Jesus of Nazareth, okay, a man, was spreading all throughout the area, and it drew many to him. His word, his touch, had authority and command to do things that no one had ever seen. And so what did they do? They brought them... People who were oppressed by demons, though who were sick with disease and illness. And again, he exercises in this situation his will to heal and to, um, and to cast out the evil spirits. With a word, he healed and cast out these spirits. What was taking place in this region? Like, if. Again, it's just one of these things where you have to sit down and meditate on the Word of God, to meditate on the works of Christ. What was taking place in this region was incomparable. The power of God was literally being manifest through Jesus' teaching, His preaching, and His working of miracles and healings and um, casting out demons. The power of God was being made known at the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. His words commanded obedience, and His words were declared with such great authority. Something was taking place, something was happening that was beyond anything that anyone could understand. But Matthew gives us a hint of what was taking place in verse 17. This is Matthew's way of connecting the dots for those who are watching or those who are reading this gospel account after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. What was? Well, what was taking place? The manifestation of the power of God through the Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth, Casting out demons and healing the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, which was Isaiah 53, which we read earlier. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, this is a theme that runs throughout, especially the first few six, seven, eight, nine, maybe ten chapters of Matthew, that we're seeing Jesus do things that point back to the scriptures of the Old Testament. That prophesied about one who was to come. There are six or seven Old Testament prophecies 
that are fulfilled in these first eight chapters that are made known, I should say, that are declared. So if you go back to verse uh, chapter 1 and read through chapter 8, you'll see the similar saying, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah or the prophet Jeremiah or even um, Hosea. I don't think Hosea is mentioned, but there is a prophecy of Hosea that's mentioned. Four of those are prophecies directly from Isaiah, as this one is. Now, the question is, what is Matthew trying to say? What dots are he trying to connect? You also have to remember something. You might not know. Matthew is a Jew. He understands the Old Testament, and he's writing to an audience whom we assume understands the Old Testament. So, Matthew isn't just saying things to say, oh, he's doing these things. He's pointing them back to the prophecies of the prophets, of preaching about one who is to come. He's trying to awaken in his Jewish audience the identity of this Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's saying, hey, this is him. This is the guy you've been waiting for. Now, for the remainder of our time, and we won't go very long here, this is where we want to settle in connecting these dots that Matthew's putting together for us. And so the first question we ask is, what is Matthew suggesting when it comes to this Jesus? Now, he's already told us a couple of things regarding Jesus and his prophecy. Chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. We got it. But in reference to Isaiah 53, here in, 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 in chapter 8, he's making a bold statement that Jesus is the suffering servant of Isaiah. All right, He is the man that Isaiah is referencing as he goes through... Um, the last few books in Isaiah's prophecy. So then we ask, who's the suffering servant? Just raise your hand. Who's heard of the songs of the suffering servant? Okay, a few of us. I want, I'm giving you homework. Write these down and read these this week. Evie, wake up. Write these chapters and verses down and read these four songs that we call them about Jesus, written over 500 years before he was born. Here they are. They're all in Isaiah. 42, verses 1 through 9. 49, verses 1 through 7. Chapter 50. Verses 4 through 11, and chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53, which is what we read in our reading, scripture reading this morning. And in that last section is where this reference in Matthew 8 comes from. Now, just here's a short summary of what those four things say. Number one. He, the suffering servant, will establish justice. Not only justice for Israel, but he will establish justice in the earth. Number two, the suffering servant will restore Israel 
that not only restore Israel, but be a light of salvation to all the nations. Number three, the suffering servant will suffer. He will suffer greatly for his ministry, and it will be because of his obedience to his father. Number four, finally, he will accomplish this by giving up his life as a guilt offering, bearing the sin and guilt as an atoning sacrifice, satisfying the wrath of God. So he quickly establishes justice, restore Israel and is a light to salvation to all the nations. He will suffer for this greatly and he will give his life as a guilt offering to satisfy the wrath of God. All of that, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is found in those few sections of Isaiah, the Old Testament. Study it, and it will help you understand. It will help you see. Just blow off the dust of your Old Testament. Spend some time in it, and read it, and let the Spirit of God help you see fuller the truth of God. What we talked about this morning when it was asked about how, how churches can affirm uh, homosexuality and transgender. Like how? Well, it's because they're, they've ripped out their Old Testament. They've ripped out even the epistles. Right? If you're not a student of the Word of God, then you will miss out. You'll be deceived. Very much so. If the Word of God is our weapon, to only have portions is to carry a weapon that is dull, or in probably more modern terms, unloaded. Okay? So, spend some time in those sections. Um, now, uh, to help... To show you, now this isn't exciting stuff, but what we're doing is we're, we're seeing what's happening, what's unfolding based off Scripture. But now I want to give you in Luke, go to Luke, three first-hand accounts of three different Jews waiting for this suffering servant and then realizing that the suffering servant is Jesus of Nazareth. Luke 1, verse 67. This is the prophecy of John the Baptist's father, Zechariah. This, this prophecy that he declares after his tongue is loosened after the birth of his son, John the Baptist, who's to be the forebear of Jesus, the king, the suffering servant. Luke 1, 67. Now, Think about those four things I said that come out of the, song, the songs of the suffering servant and hear how they find themselves in Zechariah's prophecy after the birth of his son, waiting upon the birth of Jesus. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, horn of salvation just ultimately means a powerful, a powerful. Um, horn is usually meant to signify power. 
um, verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers Abraham to grant to us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days. And you, child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now chapter 2, a little bit shorter, verse 25, as uh, Joseph and Mary take Jesus into Jerusalem as, uh, as they are to do for purification according to the law of Moses, they meet a man in the temple, the man Simeon. Verse 25 of chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. How did he know about it? Isaiah, right? The Old Testament. He knew it was coming. Waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came into the Spirit, into the temple, and when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him, Simeon took him, Jesus, up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant, Simeon, Die or depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. It's as if he knew the songs of the suffering servant. Now one more. Turn over uh, to verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow, until she was 84, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Again, waiting for the suffering servant to appear. Verse 38. And coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to whom all were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so Matthew is saying to all of his readers, he has come. He is here. And he points to Isaiah, the song of the suffering servant, to make this declaration. For the actions of the crowds fleeing to him, coming to him, oppressed and sick. And then Jesus' response and his divine work and his power and his authority was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Now, 
What does that mean? What does all this mean is our next question. The suffering servant, the justice, the redemption, the restoration, the salvation. What does this mean for us? Now I'm going to make this very simple. But this very simple statement is not very simple at all. The suffering servant has come to save the world. Not you. The world. Now, what do we mean by that? Isaiah 42 says this. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Isaiah 49 says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring them back and and preserve Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. What do you know about this earth? What do you know about this world? What do you know about this creation? It's June. That should say enough. Right? Our world is declaring that This is a month of pride and sin. So what do we know about this world? We know that it is fallen. It is under a curse. And our bodies exist under that curse. From the beginning of time, at the sin of Adam, and now, all of this, the sin and the uh, the curse of sin and the fallenness of of this world is manifest here in Matthew 8 in demons and diseases in Satan and sickness both plaguing mankind who is under the curse of sin like the rest of the world we must understand something and that's the condition of people the condition of the people excuse me that are being brought to Jesus in verse 16 are in this state Because of the fall. The oppression of the demons, the sicknesses, the diseases. This is all connected back to sin. The world is broken and the bodies we inhabit, as Paul calls them, are what? Bodies of death. And Satan and his demons have their way with man here. And we see it in chapter 8. The world is in need of restoration. And Matthew, in saying what he says in verse 17, is saying, guess what? The time has begun. The world is being restored. That's what's happening in our text. Jesus, the suffering servant, is giving us a taste of the full restoration of the world which is to come. He's giving us a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven right now in Matthew 8. Think about that. All evil vanquished, all sickness and disease eradicated, no more pain, no more discomfort. There in Capernaum, they are witnessing a small degree of what will one day be throughout the entire world. Throughout the ends of the earth, the whole nation under the authority and kingdom of God. The citizens of the kingdom of God... Oh, gone too far there. Um, think about what John writes. Now, we know John 3.16, right? 
But to know the verse before it and the verse after is really helpful. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. In the final chapters of Revelation, what do we see? We see the fullness of the kingdom kingdom of God coming into picture. We see the devil and all who follow him and his demons cast into the lake of fire to be tormented day and night forever and ever, never once again to hinder or hurt any. As for the sickness and disease removed forever, the citizens of the kingdom of God will find themselves amongst the tree of life. And do you know what will come from the tree? Leaves for the healing of what? The nations. No longer, he says in Revelation 22, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. What did they bring to Him? People oppressed by demons and full of sickness. Jesus says, here's a taste of the kingdom that is to come. No longer to be accursed, but to be in the middle of the throne of God and the Lamb, to serve Him and to worship Him. Salvation and restoration of the nations of the world has come. And that's what Jesus is showing these people in Capernaum. right? And then Paul tells the Romans something similar, but he says it a bit different. He says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemptions of our bodies. So, what grounds is there for this restoration, this redemption of the whole world to take place? Well, the answer lies in the fact that Matthew quoted Isaiah 53. The text of Isaiah 53 isn't concerned about temporary healing, which is what these people in Capernaum were experiencing. But when when Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 and uses sort of a wordplay here, he's saying, as you see these illnesses and diseases being cast out, understand this, that the The root of the problem is actually what is being taken care of in the suffering servant. Matthew's reference of Isaiah and his prophecy makes sense considering that the presence of oppression from demons, illnesses, disease, and ultimately death have a root in what? Sin. The fall of mankind. The curse of sin. And where does that point you? 
not to a physical healing, not to a hospital, not to a med- not to anything medical, not to a psychiatrist, but that points you to the suffering servant upon the cross. Upon the cross. See, we cannot read, this is why this is, to me, has always been tricky. We cannot read Matthew's response or pointing back to Isaiah 53 as if he's ultimately concerned with illnesses and diseases. No, he's ultimately concerned with sin. The Son of Man must be lifted up because why? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Spurgeon says it this way as he preached a message on this passage, which I would encourage you all to go read because it's a lot better than the one you just heard. Uh, He says this, Jesus is able to heal all the mischief that sin has worked because he himself took our sin upon himself by his sacred substitution. He He finalizes with this, Sin is the root of our infirmities and diseases, and so in taking the root, Jesus... He took all the bitter fruit which the root did bear. So where does that leave us? That leaves us with hope of healing. Understand that. In Christ, you have a hope of healing. But first and foremost, we have to understand that no matter the depth of our diseases or our illness, if we are knocking on death's door, we still have hope of healing because the one thing that he healed that was most important was Our hearts, the sickness of the human heart, but Christ, by his wounds, we have been healed. That's the first step of our hope of healing. The second step is the reality is that God isn't just in the restoring hearts. He's in the restoring heart, soul, and body. And one day... When the Lord steps foot back on this earth, you will be in a healed body, your glorified body. And so, yes, there is hope in healing. You might take cancer to the grave, but you can know in Christ that you will stand in your body cancer free, diabetes free, without glasses, whatever perfect arches. Whatever the case may be, the Lord, there is hope and healing in Jesus Christ because of the cross of Christ, right? Because our problems with our physical sense is not the problem. They're there because of the internal problem. And we have hope of healing because Christ bore not our diseases and sicknesses. While he did in Capernaum, he bore our sin. Now, just to close, and I just want to read this to you, and one that you can take today, and I know you know, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, because you might be losing heart today, right? You might, we all are decaying, we all are wasting away, right? We all are dealing with sicknesses and diseases, some more than others, but we do not lose heart as Christians. Why? Verse 16, 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but for the things that are unseen are eternal. Praise be to God in Jesus Christ. But we can t- because we're not writing a letter to the Corinthians and we know 1 Corinthians 15, we know that one day our bodies, will, our, the things that we long for will not just be unseen, but we will see Christ and we will see one another in a physical, redeemed body. Because Christ saves us completely, heart, soul, and body. That is who we serve. That is who we are. That's who has raised us up from the dead in order that we might worship Him for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for thank you for knowing and understanding. It is not this life that we need saved from. It is even not just our hearts that need to be healed, but we need to be saved completely. And only you can do it in a a way and as powerful in a way to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and to make us like Jesus. And one day when we see him, we will be like him. We thank you for the benefits that we have in Christ in this life and in death and in the resurrection. Praise be to God. Praise be to our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now let's let's stand and sing.